0: Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Darrawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello,
1: my name is Mary Lou Stevens. Welcome to the Rights for Women podcast. I am the author of The Last of the Apple Blossom, came out earlier this year And I am taking over this podcast today to speak to Emily Madden about her brand-new release, The Buchanan Girls. So welcome, Emily. Thanks for having me. Now, Emily's love of books started at a young age and she'd often go shopping just so that her mother could buy her a new book. Her love of writing started at a young age too. She wrote her first novel at the age of eight. The Buchanan Girls is her third historical novel after the much-loved The Lost Pearl and Heart of the Cross. The Buchanan Girls is a dual timeline story that focuses on family, friendships, identity, secrets, war, love, sacrifice, betrayal in a big way, oh, and ghosts, one in particular. One of the timelines features identical twins Olive and Ivy and starts in Sydney in 1941. The other timeline is told from Madeline's point of view, it's also set in Sydney and starts in 2008. So, Emily, first up, let's talk about your evolution as a novelist. So, your first book at the age of eight to your first published novel, Summers with Juliet. What happened with your
2: writing in those years in between? Okay, so when I was eight years old, I remember writing a story and it was about a hawk and a peacock and it was a loose, and in the in the book, I wish I kept it. I, I really would have loved to have kept it. But I used a hawk and a peacock as in the birds. But, but really, it was really about, uh, at the time, this was the early 80s and Bob Hawke was our prime minister and Andrew Peacock was the opposition leader. So somehow I wrote a, quasi-political story at the age of eight. I know it's a bit weird. From then to my first published novel, I really, I guess I didn't really write many stories. Poetry became quite, I guess, my thing. And as a teenager, um, as a moody teenager, I think the best poetry comes from from those teenage emotions because, you know, as a teenager, you're always you think you're the only one feeling the way you're feeling. So poetry really became, I guess, the main source or the main writing that I did in in those years. But Summers with Juliet was a, a story I wrote because I had uh, in me. I think a lot of writers have this. You know, you you've you know that you've always wanted to to be a writer and you think well, one day I'll write a book one day at the time was of writing something with Juliet I I take an extended maternity leave and it was a very extended maternity leave because one of my girls was diagnosed with autism and I was looking. Um, for everything from her, her therapies to her education, to everything, all her early intervention that she needed. So I, I, I took time off work. And one year, one year became two years, two years became five years. And while she was looking like she was set up and everything was going swimmingly with her, I found that my, my brain did not cope, not being used in a way that it had most of my adult life. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to try to write a book now. I wrote one, submitted it didn't really go anywhere. But they actually said to me, if you write something else, please resubmit. So I did. I wrote Summers to Juliet. And at the time, I submitted it to Escape. They were the digital, and I think they still are, the digital of Harlequin. And the editor that I'd submitted it to said, look, I really like this, but I think it'd work really well in print. Do you mind if I send it to... um, to Harlequin and they can consider it. And I'm like, yeah, you can send it. It would (laughs) be nice. And about a month later, I got an email and had I read the title of the email that actually told me that they wanted to publish the book, I would have known. Instead, I read paragraphs and paragraphs and then at the last line they they actually told me that they wanted to publish my book and it was it was the most surreal moment I can tell you exactly where I was and what time of the day was as well so it's something that I will never forget so Summers with Juliet was released at the beginning of 2016 and then yeah that was a contemporary a Mm. contemporary uh, fiction story and I guess one of the things that ties that Particular book to all my historical fiction books is the sense of the sense of friendship, but also secrets. Mm. Secrets are the big things that I've kind of carried over from from just writing contemporary fiction to writing dual timelines.
1: And what prompted your move to historical fiction?
2: I've always loved dual timelines. And even when I'm writing it, I write it the way you read it. I flip between the two time periods. I know some dual timeline writers like to write one particular stream of of the book. So they might write all the historical or all the contemporary in one go. But I like changing it up. And I also like being in one particular time and place, then going towards the end, going, okay, now I need to change the pace and then flipping over to the past or come back to the present I'm just fascinated. I'm just fascinated. And as I said, it's the secrets. I love burying the secret and then slowly unravelling it as the story progresses.
1: You have dedicated the Buchanan girls to your aunt Lubica. Why was she important in your life?
2: Oh, my goodness, because she, from a very early age, she was the one who fostered my love of books. She was my mum's youngest sister, my mum grew up in, in Newcastle, so, you know, we obviously moved to Sydney when when she married my my father. Most of her, you know, family and, and my aunt, my youngest aunt, remained in Newcastle. And I would spend, because there was a bit of an age difference between my mum and her, and her younger sister, my aunt was living at home, you know, when I was, you know, about five or six. And she, I remember walking down the street. There was this beautiful park at the end of the street where my grandparents lived, and we would be walking there to have a picnic. And she would make me recite my name, my address, my phone number, and how old I was. And, and then I would come back and there would be this wall of books. And I knew that at that point I was too young to, to read them. But, you know, as I got older, it was just so fascinating. And it was it was my dream to, to read. So, And it was from her. I, she was the one who fostered my love of, of reading. And unfortunately, we, we lost her at a very young age. She was 36 when she passed. And it devastated me. And I would have loved to have shown her, um, shown her my books. And I know that she would have, she would have been probably one of my biggest, my biggest fans. I am mm. sure she would have loved The Buchanan
1: Girls. It's a wonderful novel with twists that you just don't see coming. And I have seen some people say, Emily, this is your best novel yet. So congratulations on The Buchanan Girls. Can you give us a, a brief description of what happens in the story?
2: Well, as you as you mentioned, it's a dual timeline set in two time periods. We, we start off with looking at the life of... Oliver and ivy Buchanan. at this stage you know when when the story begins australia's been in war i think it was about 3 years but it was also just on the precipice as to when the, the pearl harbor attack was about literally just happened and that really changed the landscape of of war wartime in australia it became very apparent with the japanese when they invaded not just pearl harbor but the pacific it, it almost felt like this could be us and and it was in some ways because there was the, the Darwin um, attack that happened two to three months after Pearl Harbour. That's almost like a pivotal point in the in in war in Australia. We all know that, you know, that during the war, the war effort, how important our men were in the war effort. But one of the things that I found when I was researching this book is, is this brilliant organisation called the, the Australian Women's Army Service. And I was just so, I was astounded that we don't know so much about these women. So so this is where I saw an opportunity and in the book, this is what Ivy wants to do. She wants to join the Australian Women's Army Service and she wants to make a difference. The problem is is that her father does not let her because he doesn't see it appropriate for her social standing. On the flip side, her sister Olive, you know, her fiancé is a corporal in the Australian Army and all she wants is to marry her her fiancé before he's shipped off... um, to, to Singapore. So we see two sisters, very different goals and ambitions in life and we follow their journey you know because all they want is really you know for, for Olive she wants her her fiance to come back safely and for for Ivy you know she thinks that all she wants is to make to do her bit to make a, um, to make a difference. But along the way, she meets meets an American pilot and she falls in love. And, you know, as we see, both the sisters, all they want is to get to the end of the war and to be with the the men that they love. In the present, we follow the story of of Madeline. She's been living in New York for a number of years. Um, And she really is at a crossroads because she's just literally found out her husband's cheated on her. And she doesn't know what to do. Her first instinct is to come home and to to work her way through it. And one of the main ways that she does that is with the help of her, her grandmother.
1: Now, you mentioned the Australian Women's Service Army and I did find all the descriptions of what they did and what they got up to and where they stayed and um, the trips they made to Magnetic Island because they were up in Townsville. How did you go about researching that part of the story?
2: I was quite lucky that when I was doing the bulk of of my research, it was pre-COVID. So I actually went to Townsville for and spent some time in Townsville. Went to Magnetic Island. I really love when I'm writing about a time and a place. Well, at least you can't. I can't go back in time, but I can go visit the locations. I couldn't write about about Townsville, which was so pivotal, where the Australian Women's Army Service was based and and their I guess their effort without being there, without seeing the, you know, going to Magnetic Island. And the other really key, I guess, stream of research came from going to the War Memorial and um, in Canberra and actually spending some time in the library. They have some wonderful books that you can't take. You can, And you can't actually um, do anything except they give you these books and you just need to write notes. And you can only write your notes in pencil. You can't take a pen in there. So I spent hours just scribbling and I've, And I've forgotten how hard it was to write in pencil at times. But there was a few books that I just thought, I'm going to have to find these ones because they're just gold. So I I scoured eBay um, and and Amazon and found these wonderful books. You know, research is a big, 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 big thing for me. And another key, I guess, research stream was the big part of the book um, is set on some grounds that used to be an asylum, which is now divided and part of it's used by from New South Wales Health for some health services. Part of it was part of Gladesville Hospital. But there's also a big part of the, the former grounds of the asylum that's been used for a school with special needs kids. And my daughter goes to that school. So I've got this, that connection. From the very moment I stepped into the school, I knew that it was steeped in history. And just over the years, talking to... Talking to parents and and staff members, I've gotten to know a little bit about the history of the asylum, which was quite gruesome. And the asylum itself is known, well, the the ground. They're classified as probably one of the most haunted locations, if not Australia, definitely in Sydney. And unfortunately, because of COVID, I couldn't swap all the, the whole site, but I was able to see parts of buildings and just... And then piecing it with the information I'd known from my from other research and from talking to people, you can definitely get a sense that this place is a bit creepy.
1: It's interesting, the supernatural element. So Madeline, who's in the Contemporary Timeline 2008, moves into an allegedly haunted apartment And you do have that ghostly supernatural element through that timeline. Was that always going to be part of the book or did it come from actually going to the grounds and finding out about all the hauntings?
2: I think because if I take a step back, the way the book was written, I I wrote a draft um, and then wasn't happy with it. And it was in the second iteration that became clear that I needed to weave something between the past and the present and tie it together in a more, I guess, substantial way. I do have, without giving away a part of the story, I do have a, a very big key between, a link between the past and the present. But I just found that I just needed a little bit, something a little bit more substantial. And the ghost was definitely, um, yeah, it was the, it was the linchpin. And I, I guess you know, it was at the end, it was a no brainer that this site is haunted, and of course. The, the apartment block is part of, you know, it's set on a part of, you know, that used to be the asylum. So, of course, it's going to be haunted. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there was a really, really interesting element and I thought you handled it extremely well because I imagine it's it's a
2: bit tricky bringing a ghost into a novel like this. I have never written a ghost into a story. You, you just, you don't want to make it cliche as well, like but at the same time, you still need to bring those almost cliche elements about a ghost into the story as well. So, yeah, it was at the time I'm writing going, oh, God, this is a little bit crazy. But then I'm thinking, well, it is crazy because it's in the asylum. So, yeah, it, it all fits.
1: <laughs> it does. It works really well. Congratulations. I think that's the Thank you. It's a testament to your skill as a writer that it works so well. Now I want to talk about Olive. Oh, Olive. So she's one of the twins. She's the one who's getting married to a lieutenant and, oh, sorry, is he a, he's a lieutenant or that, a corporal? He's a corporal. He's a corporal. Yep. Yeah, Ivy's boyfriend is a, a lieutenant. Lieutenant, yep. And, yes, now Olive really she is a complete not a bitch. There's no other way to put it, and they say that villains get the best lines. So Emily was
2: Olive fun to write. She was. I, I can't. I really felt sorry because I keep, Every review I read, and was like you know, eight out of ten times we'll go. Oh, I couldn't stand Olive. But you know, I loved Ivy and I'm like, oh, poor Olive. I know she she is quite bit. Look, at the end, at the end in one of my drafts, she she actually was a little bit nicer, but I thought, you know, that's not gonna serve anyone well. Look, she was fun to write. You have to have a baddie. I always have a baddie. And, you know, I don't hide it. Like it's not something like, you know, that you see at the beginning, someone looks Someone who's really nice, and then they certainly um, suddenly become baddie. From the beginning, we know Olive. Even from the, almost the first paragraph, we know that she's she she thinks she's superior to her sister, and she doesn't hide it. She really doesn't have a lot of scruples. But in her defence, she really she really believes in her own cause. I think, and I'd like to think that even like towards the end, that she she did have some a little bit of re- redemption. I'd like to hope, and at least I think Ivy. Mm, maybe, feels that she was, I'm not sure, you know, I'd leave that to the reader to decide what they think.
1: There's always mitigating circumstances, I think, around a
2: villain though.
1: And I was wondering to what extent do you think their father was to blame for the way she was? Because he treats both, he treats the girls so differently.
2: Yeah. One of the things that I've learned as a writer is in your first page, you need to really set up the tone to the book. And I think you were right, Andrew Buchanan Really was the uh, driving force. He set the example of how different those two girls were, which um, were treated from the very beginning. You can see that in, in the opening page, and that continued. And I think it was only at a certain point that he realised the error of his ways. Yeah, he definitely. We can put a lot of blame on Andrew. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so.
1: Now I mentioned the the US. Lieutenant, they call them lieutenants in the States, don't they? It's lieutenant here. Uh, so yeah. Leo Hamilton, he gets tagged <laughs> up in the attack on Pearl Harbour, as you mentioned, and then later is, evacu- is part of the evacuation of General MacArthur from the Philippines. So how did you go about building the character of Leo? Because he is a point of view character as well, and the research that went into that
2: is that too. Can I just say a lot of research? Because not only did I have to re- research um, the... I guess the different ranks in the Australian army and make sure that I was given giving people the appropriate rank for their for their age really I couldn't just really make them something that they weren't that it wasn't wouldn't be, have been possible for their their level experience or their age but the research that I had to do into the American system was just it, it's it's mind boggling and not just that but when I first wrote Leo he, he was one of the main reasons I rewrote p- parts of the book cuz it took a long time to connect with Leo, but once I actually understood who he was and and I was able to finesse him into the person that, you know, because you, sometimes you have an idea of what a character should be like in your mind, but it doesn't translate when you write it. And, yeah, me and Leo, it was a slow burn, but we got there in the end. And it wasn't just the research into the, I guess, the American, which, which is now the, the Air Force and Navy, but it was called something else at the beginning of the Second World War, but I had to learn about the plane he was flying Mm. and what kind of missions they were sent on and, you know, all the detail and how many crew members and what the role of each crew member was. And I remember... Getting some notes back from the editor, and she said, "I don't think we need all this detail about the plane." And I was like, "Oh, I just learned all this stuff, and I wanted to, I wanted to put it in." That's always the way it goes, doesn't it? You do so much
1: research, and then you just pull it out, and pull it out. Yeah,
2: and you but might just use a line at the end, and yeah. that's it.
1: Yeah, yeah, but still, all that research shines through the Buchanan Girls because it has that that air, not of authority, yes, but also you know you're in safe hands, you know that what you're saying is based in in truth and fact and all that kind of stuff and, you know, you can't go past that, I don't think, in a historical Now, Ivy, she is the downtrodden kind of Cinderella character, but she does sign up to the Australian Women's Service Army, even though she's underage, so she lies, she does all that kind of stuff. She's been downtrodden for so long... So what was it, do you think, that that finally gave her this impetus to actually do something for herself?
2: I think it was because, you know, she basically saw something she really believed in. She, she felt helpless at the beginning, knowing that the Japanese could attack and that they were advancing and that men were being sent, you know, that needed to be, I guess, freed up to be sent overseas. And she knew that the way she could do something was, was to do her bit the turning point or the point that i think was where everything said you know in her mind went okay now i'm actually going to do this is when they were in that scene the david jones scene when they'd gone shopping with their sister and they were sitting there and it was an evacuation drill just look at the, the way the two girls handled the situation in some ways you know olive who was was perfect she was always so poised really just crumpled and it was ivy that was the strong one she was the one who literally almost shepherded her sister to safety even though that was it was a false alarm for her she was like well you know what this was a false alarm now but this could be the way our life it it could turn out this way so you know whether or not her her father was going to allow it she thought this actually trumped that so In my mind, I think when I wrote that scene, I was like, okay, this is her turning point. And I think then you see her, she grabbed the magazine that her sister was reading, the Australian Women's Weekly, and there was the ad in there. And that was like, you know what, this is it, I'm doing it.
0: Mm.
1: Now, let's step forward to 2008, Madeline's storyline. Now, you mentioned that your daughter's autistic, and so that the school that Madeline gets a job at, mm-hmm. is that based on your daughter's school?
2: Definitely based on the school. I've changed the name of the school, but it is definitely based on the school, just and the setup and that and that program where the kids actually go to the, the nursing home. That was an idea I stole from what the kids were actually doing at that time. At the school they had gone. And once a week, they would go and spend time with the residents of the nursing home that was across the road from the school. And I remember her teacher, her class teacher at the time was telling me that she had formed a really beautiful friendship with one of the women who was at the nursing home. And I'm like, I need to write this in. Into- it's beautiful. All those
1: scenes are so touching. It's just lovely. And how important was it for you to actually have a storyline in this book that relates to your own child?
2: Oh, it was, it was something that I guess, you know, a family member after reading the book, she, she wrote back to me. She said, it was a beautiful story. She goes, because I can tell it's your healing story. Because at the beginning when she was uh, diagnosed, it was a very d- difficult time for all, all of our family. You know, she was quite young, obviously. But when you have a child, you have all these hopes and you have these dreams and you have, I guess, all these plans for them. And then suddenly when things do not go on that course... You are forced to reevaluate everything, you know, your expectations, you but there's also a sense of fear because you fear for their for their future. And I guess for us, the, the school that she does go to was our point where we we were like, this is just the most amazing place on earth for her. It is where she has thrived, it is given her such a sense of belonging and accomplishment. And year after year she just grows and and just her knowledge expands so for me to write into that that was a big part of my personal life and just taking elements of her story taking elements of all the kids in her, you know at the school that I know and I've just put them into into the story and the staff are wonderful they're amazing and and I wanted to showcase that as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: No, it's very touching it's lovely and beautifully written so
1: well done. Now, you say in the acknowledgements that The Buchanan Girls was the hardest of your novels to write. So why was that?
2: A lot of different reasons, one of which was I wrote a lot of the book when we were in that first lockdown in March of 2020. And I think, you know, while I found myself with with a little bit more time than usual, I also, like lots of people around the country, Was feeling quite uneasy at the situation we were finding ourselves in, and I think I get really affected by what's going on around me. So I think when I was writing, it just I just couldn't connect with the characters, and you know I mentioned it was really hard to connect with Leo, but I also think that when I first wrote the book in my first draft, even Ivy just was not right, and even their their romance it wasn't. It felt quite flat. But you get to the end of the book and you think, okay, well I've I've written the book and. I think it's okay. And then my publisher said, look, I think it needs a little bit of work. I was quite lucky. We sat down and we workshopped, I guess, the areas that w- w- really needed more focus. And then I took myself away on a writing retreat by myself in the middle of winter and I rewrote half the book and and then came back. And then I sent it back to them and said, almost there. And then I went back and I rewrote the, la- the back end of the book as well. So... I guess it was the hardest book to write because it was the longest it ever took taken me to write a book. You know, I wrote The Lost Pearl in six months or four, about four and a half months, six months till it got to the end. Heart of the Cross was about nine months. But this book, from when I really started writing it to when I actually finished it, it was close to two and a half years. Just The length of time um, was one of the things that contributed to how hard the book was, but also because... Bringing in um, the elements of, you know, my daughter and her school and the asylum, it really just you, it actually opens up some, yeah, some old wounds of, of things, you know, from the past that you, that you think you've healed with, but, you know, just really opens you up. And I think the other part was because there were so many areas that needed research that, that um, you know, Townsville, the asylum and the Australian Women's Army Service, the American, you know, naval and, and air force systems and, and then also making sure that the factual elements that you're putting into it, such as the MacArthur Rescue, that you're writing something that really happened. So you don't want to change history by changing elements of it. So you want to get right, but then you don't just want to retell something that's been told a thousand times before. So you, it's, it's hard because you need to get all those elements right.
1: Mm. So what was the most rewarding aspect of writing The Buchanan Girls?
2: When I submitted the book at the right at the end, and I knew, I knew that this was a much stronger book, and yeah, that I just, you could see the growth in the book from the first draft to the second to the third, and so so rewarding. I mean, there's many different areas of of publishing a book that that give you, I guess, a sense of accomplishment, but having that final draft done and knowing this is it. This is the best it's going to be. And, yeah, from here on in, it's about getting it ready to, to show it to the world. That was probably my, the part that gave me the, best, the biggest sense of accomplishment.
1: Yeah, it is an amazing accomplishment to get a book out into the world. But sadly, I think 2021 has been the toughest year uh-huh. in which to release yep. a book. So how
2: was that for you? Did you get to celebrate at all or what did you do? No, because... We were in part of the harshest lockdown that you know, along with Victoria, that our country has seen. So, the first time that I got to actually see my book into in a bookstore was this week. We, even though we've been we've been open for a few weeks now, um, I've had slowly getting allowing myself to go back into the world. And this week, I went in, I saw my book on the shelf, and. It it never gets old. Seeing your book, whether it be the 1st, the 2nd, the 3rd or the 50th, you know, I'm sure that you get a thrill of seeing the book there. So no celebrations. Unfortunately, it was a very quiet day for me, but I'm hoping now that we are able to to meet up with people that I'll be able to fit in a celebration of the Buchanan Girls somewhere in the near future.
1: Oh, look, I really do hope that happens, Emily. This book certainly is worth celebrating. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Now I'm going to ask you for your best tips. So a couple of tips for aspiring
2: writers first up. I know that it's always tempting to see what genre is hot out there to write about, but for me, I think, and it's been said so many times before, write what you love. If you cannot connect with a particular genre, don't write it. I could never write thr- a thriller or even a sci-fi. Like I could not even though I enjoy reading them, I, I I just don't have that kind of thought process. For me, writing historical fiction is something that I adore and I and this is I guess the best the best advice I can give to anyone. If you really connect with a specific genre, just write that.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so my next question is Tips for writers who have a couple of books out there already? Because we don't hear many tips for writers at this stage of their career. So, yeah. you know, your book's come out, or your second book's come out, and this is your fourth one. So, any particular tips around that area?
2: Yeah, I had a very um, rough patch between my first and my second book. Um, I found that, you know, the ideas that I had, had for, you know, the, the book After Summers with Juliet, it was a, uh, a contemporary fiction book and at times it was a bit historical. It had a bit of an identity crisis. So I think what you need to do is really think about what you want your brand to be. And for me, I I always wanted to write something with, with romance in it. So that's something whether it's just a straight contemporary, if it was straight historical, although I don't think I could pull off a straight historical, or if it's a dual timeline, it's going to have a, a love story in it this is going to contradict what I've just said, but almost shift and go from a contemporary fiction writer to a historical dual timeline writer because I found that at the end of it, even my first book, I was going between the past and the present. So in essence, even though it wasn't technically historical because it wasn't 50 years in the past, I always liked going back to the past and bringing it in. So I guess the, the tip that I would give, to someone who's had two or even one book out there is look at the brand that you want to build. And for me it was I want to have romance in there. I want to also have an element of of history in there and I'm going to build on that. And I think now after my third historical fiction book, that's where I'm going to be. So it's really about your first book, you're so excited that it's out there and it's almost the second one, you really need to think about what direction you want your career to go. Mm. Great, good advice.
1: And this book is fabulous. It is, as I said, it is your third historical fiction. So can we expect another historical fiction? And if so, where is it
2: going to be set? What timeline? Well, I am trying to do as much research as I can for it right now, but we still can't travel. A lot of places, Like the and the reason why um, it's taking me so long, because it's set, it sets, part of it is set in Caratha in WA, I can't travel to WA right now. And the other part is set in Vietnam. And although technically international travel is starting up, I don't see myself being able to travel internationally for, for a while. It will be set in the Vietnam War, but also bringing in a ve- Vegas showgirl and the mining town of Karatha, as well yeah. as modern-day Sydney, yeah.
1: Oh, gosh, I want to read that book. <laughs>
2: Oh, look, it's going to be such a fun one to write once I finish researching it because I'm always impatient. I want to start writing it, but I need a certain amount of research to be done before I can write it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Ah, Well, Emily, well done on writing the hardest book that you've had to write as yet. It was worth all the tears and pain and years that you put into it. It's a fabulous book, The Buchanan Girls by Emily Madden. If you haven't read it already, do yourself a favour. And, Emily, thank you so much for
2: joining us on Rights for Women. Thank you so much. It's been such a fun, fun chat.
0: Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at w4wpodcast, the Facebook page Writes for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.